Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. If you would turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. We're going to we're going to continue on with the message that we started last week. Uh, last week we looked at, we were looking at really a theology of the church. I didn't know if this was going to be a one, one shot message or this is going to turn into a series. But as right now, I think we're going to, we're going to look at a series here and really look at a theology of the church. God really wants us to understand what the church is and the purpose of the church. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions of the church and we can, uh, as I alluded to last week, we can make the church more than it was intended to be. And ultimately it ends up less than it was intended to be. And so in order for us to understand the church, we've got to understand the context of the church. There are two primary entities that Jesus, that the father spoke of through the apostles, the, through the biblical writers, Two primary entities that were spoken of in the New Testament. The Greek words utilized to communicate these two terms, these entities, are basilia and ecclesia. The basilia, that's the word for the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those are synonymous or sometimes just the kingdom. Those, and, and by the way, sometimes you'll read uh, preachers, writers, theologians that will say there's a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I don't have time to get into it this morning other than to say they're wrong. Okay? They are the same. They're synonymous. They're interchangeable. Just different writers will use different phrases. But there are parables where Jesus, one writer, one, one writer in the gospel will use the kingdom of heaven, the same parable, another writer will use the kingdom of God. They're interchangeable. There is no distinction, okay? So the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. So we have this entity, the kingdom, which is the Greek word basileia. Then we have this secondary entity called the church, or what we translate this word ecclesia into the church. Now, that again, as we talked last week, is a poor translation, so we, this, this word church has really gotten some traction over the last several hundred, you know, uh, several hundred years. And so what we've done is we've taken this word ecclesia, which is, and, and they, they've, they, they've used this word church, which literally means belongs to the Lord. The word church, it was an old English term, and it was really utilized by the King James translators. Before that, prior to that, you had William Carey, who was kind of the Martin Luther of the English-speaking world, okay? So Martin Luther translated the Greek and Hebrew scriptures into German, and he was the, the father of the Lutheran church. William Carey translated the Greek and Hebrew texts into English, and he was the father of the English translation. And most of our English translations really came from William Carey's original translation, and he rightly translated the word church, ecclesia, as the assembly. That is the meaning of the word ecclesia. And both of these words, basilia and ecclesia, already had definitions connected to them before Jesus picked them up and began to use them to communicate what he was launching, okay? 
when Jesus arrived on the scene, he came to declare that the Basileia, the kingdom of God, is at hand. He came to release the kingdom of God on earth. It's the message that he preached, the kingdom of God. It's the message that he taught his disciples to preach, the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, the methodology, what he said was, okay guys, go to a city, lay your hands on sick people, heal them, and then tell them the kingdom of God has come unto you. It's pretty good church planning strategy. Release the kingdom and then announce the kingdom. And so, as a side issue, there was a threefold kingdom strategy that Jesus utilized and then handed off to his disciples. And it was proclamation, demonstration, explanation. Declare the kingdom, proclaim the kingdom, explain the kingdom through the teachings of the kingdom, and then demonstrate the kingdom through signs and wonders. And primarily, that was through healing. Because healing is one of the primary manifestations of the kingdom of God. And as a side note, one expression of healing, so a subset of healing, so you've got the demonstrations of the kingdom, the primary one being physical healing in Jesus' ministry, but a subset of physical healing was deliverance. In the New Testament, and in Jesus' ministry, deliverance from demonic oppression or possession was looked at as healing. There was the young boy who was healed and he was delivered of a demon. So there is, there is healing both psychologically, spiritually, and physically. I guess both isn't the word, but all three, okay? So there's, there's expressions of healing and those are demonstrations of the kingdom. So much so that Jesus said, if I drive out Satan by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, a, a primary manifestation of the kingdom is the deliverance from demonic oppression and possession. That's good news. That is the good news of the king's dominion. This phrase that we see so often, the gospel of the kingdom, literally can be broken down. Literally, it means this. The good news, gospel, good news of the kingdom, the king's dominion, kingdom, the king's dominion. So what we carry is the good news of the king's dominion. This message, it has to be good news, it's not bad news, and the message is of the king's dominion. So much so that Jesus preached the gospel for two and a half years before he began to speak about his death, burial, and resurrection. Before he began to talk about he was going to have to die on the cross, he was already preaching the gospel. Which begs the question, what was he preaching on if he hadn't mentioned his death? What is the content of the gospel that Jesus preached if it wasn't about his death? The message that Jesus preached was the good news of the king's dominion. He was saying, there's a new king in town. I brought my world with me. I brought my kingdom with me. And I'm going to proclaim it. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm going to demonstrate it by casting out devils and healing sickness. And then I'm going to explain it through teaching and parables. So that people could understand. And teaching was one of the primary ways for people to enter into the kingdom. And all three of those methodologies, all three of those mandates have been handed to us as his kingdom people. As the ecclesia. As the church. We are to preach, 
and teach and release signs and wonders. That is normal Christianity. That's not for the special forces. That's not for people who have apostle on their business card. That's not for people who are, quote, called to ministry because we're all called to ministry. One of the primary expressions of the Spirit-filled life. George Verwer put it this way, with the Holy Ghost comes the Holy Go. And if you are filled with the Holy Ghost, there's something within you that wants to get it out. We are all called to ministry. Every one of us has a calling and we have gifts that match our calling. And so we need to discover those gifts so we can be launched and released into our calling. So what is it with these, this fivefold ministry stuff? Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Many people think, well, I thought they were the ones who were called to ministry. No, they're not called to ministry. They're called to equip people for ministry. What I'm doing right now is not ministry. This is equipping. What you do with it Monday through Saturday is ministry. What we do with what we hear during the equipping, what we do with what we receive through information and impartation is what is is really ministry. And we're all called to do the stuff. We all get to do the stuff. It's not for it's not reserved for an isolated few for the special people. We're all special. We all have an anointing. John said, matter of fact, he, he was, John the Apostle was so convinced of this, he said, you have no need for a teacher. You have an anointing that teaches you. Now that's not to say we're to be unteachable. It's just saying that you don't have to be dependent because there's an internal teacher, the Holy Spirit, that will guide you into all truth. Now we can supplement that because the internal teacher can also speak through somebody else and highlight what they're saying. I never fail to be amazed at, I'll preach a message and someone will come up and say, remember when you said that on Sunday? And I'm thinking, that is not what I meant. <laughs> now, it's scriptural, what you're saying, but that is not what, wasn't the point I was making. Matter of fact, until you explained it, I didn't even think I said that. I can understand how you got there, but you didn't get there by me. You got there through the internal teacher. So while I'm speaking, hopefully the internal teacher is teaching all of us. But we are to be equipped for the, for the works of the ministry. But here's the thing. If we don't understand the basilia, we will never understand the ecclesia. And for too long, that these two, that people have inadvertently made these two entities synonymous with one another. And we've thought that the kingdom and the church are one, that they're synonymous. And I was literally taught that in Bible school. And what it did is it undermined my, my, my view of what the church really was. What it did is initially it made the church more than it was intended to be. But ultimately it robbed itself of its identity and made it so much less because it unplugged the church, the ecclesia, from its power source, the basilia. And so if we don't understand the ecclesia, we'll never understand the basilia. If we don't understand the kingdom, we won't understand the church. Because the kingdom is the context, the source, and the purpose of the church. The kingdom is the end, but the church is the means. But the means without the end makes this lofty organization that has lost its way. When we don't understand the kingdom, we have an embassy with no country. 
no authority, no purpose. We just gather and talk about how great our country is. But we don't have any understanding of the purpose of the embassy. So the Basilea is literally the reign of God. That's why in, in Spanish it's reino. It's re- the reign of God. It's, it's better expressed through Spanish than it is in English. Because in English what's happened is over time this word, when you break it down, kingdom, king's dominion, When you break it down, it's easily recognizable. But over time, when you take the compound word that we call kingdom, it's lost its meaning. And over time, it's become a realm rather than the reign of a king. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is secondarily a realm. But ultimately and primarily, it is the reign of God. And that is an important distinction. Because when we are, we are called to release the kingdom, we carry the kingdom as subjects of the kingdom. We have been translated, Paul said, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. We changed nations. We changed kings. I am no longer under the authority of darkness, and I once was. I tried to stop drinking on my own. I tried to stop using drugs on my own. I tried to stop cussing on my own. I tried to stop all that, and I was unable. I tried man's methodology. I went to NA. I went to AA. I tried anabuse. I tried all that stuff, and I was under the subjection of a king, and I manifested his kingdom. But when I got saved, I was immediately translated from the kingdom of darkness, and I had a new king, and all of a sudden I was free. It was an amazing thing. It was, I didn't have to try. Now, I had to renew my mind because even though my spirit was in the new kingdom, my mind was still thinking like the old kingdom. And so over time, I had to renew my mind so that my head would follow what my heart already knew. So that my head could understand what my spirit was living in. Because if my my body were to follow my head rather than my spirit, I kept messing up. But as I renewed my mind through the teaching of the word, the principles of the kingdom, the parables of the kingdom, as I began to understand that, those old habits, my behavior began to follow my belief. And as my believing changed, my behaving changed. But what really happened was I had been translated way back there the night I cried out to Jesus. And so I was translated into a new kingdom. And that's all great, and that's all fine, and that's all dandy. I mean, I don't want to minimize that. I, I don't want to be, that is a, a tremendous thing. But for too long in the church, we have emphasized our personal relationship with God. And I don't want to minimize that. It's got to start there. East Stanley Jones, a famous writer, he put it this way. He said, if the kingdom doesn't begin with the individual, it never truly begins. But if it ends with the individual, it truly ends. What was he saying? He was saying that it starts with you. But if the me that got saved 
doesn't join a we that got saved, then the kingdom is never fully expressed like it was intended to. The embassy, I never, I never tie into the embassy of God, the, the, the church, the ecclesia, the expression of God on earth. And so we have a personal relationship with God, but what we need to understand is that the same encounter with God, the same prayer that broke me, I, I, I got saved before I prayed. I just said Jesus. That wasn't even a prayer. It was kind of, I was opening conversation. I didn't really plan on getting saved, so I can't even say that it was a prayer. My encounter with God that brought me into my personal relationship, unbeknownst to me, also brought me into what we need to refer to as a corporate relationship with God. So the question here this morning is this, how is your corporate relationship with God? That's great that you have a prayer life, that you read the word, that you know Jesus. But I am here to tell you this morning, if you don't have a corporate relationship with God, if you don't only know God if you, if you only know God personally, but you don't know him corporately through others and with others, then you have stopped short of what God has intended and you have forfeited a major expression of what God wants to show you. So much so that Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. Last two verses. He says, God hath put everything under Jesus' feet, comma, for the ecclesia, the church, comma, and then he tells us, two, gives us two expressions of what that is. He defines what the church is. His body, so the church is his body, comma, and then here's the big, the big revelation, okay? The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Catch that. You can never have the fullness of God outside of the church. If you only have a personal relationship with Jesus, you've got a partial revelation. You have, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, you've got a measure of the gift of Christ. And that is exactly the language Paul uses. The King James Version translates it very well. You have a measure of the gift of Christ. That's great. Hallelujah, it's enough to get you to heaven, but it ain't enough to get heaven to earth through your life. What you need is you need to take your measure of the gift, your little cup, and you need to bring it into a big cauldron called the church and add your measure to everybody else's measure so that we have the fullness of the gift of Christ. Because the fullness is only found in the ecclesia. And so it's crucial that we understand the, the importance of the ecclesia. So what we're going to launch into over the next number of weeks is a study on our corporate relationship with God. How's your corporate relationship with God? So we're going to get into that. But before we can understand the ecclesia as the lens through which we have a corporate relationship with God, and we have these beautiful metaphors in the New Testament that express to us what the church is. And each one, it's like a diamond. You turn it and you see different facets. And every one of these metaphors gives us a little different perspective, a little different facet on the beauty of what the church is to us for God. But before we can understand the full weight of what the ecclesia is to be, we must first understand the basilia, the kingdom. 
Because again, the kingdom is the context. The kingdom is the empowerment. It's the source of the ecclesia. And it is the purpose of the ecclesia. Several years ago, I think I might have shared this last week. Several years ago, Jack Taylor came and he preached on the kingdom. And it rocked my world. And and before that time, I had a lot of questions. I had been preaching the word for some 25 years. I have, by the grace of God, given myself to the study of the word. And I've got thousands of books and thousands of hours crying out to God. And God has spoken to me like he has to you. And I had all this stuff. That over time, I was building a theology just like you are, whether you know it or not. You're building a theology through which you relate with God and His people. I was building this theology, but I kept having all these parts left over. And I thought, this doesn't fit with... I know it's in the Word, and I know God spoke this one to me, and I know that Paul said this, and Peter said this, but they just don't fit with my theology. I, I don't know where these parts go, and that's always a bad feeling. You ever made something and had parts left over? You think, this can't be good. It's not like it's an extra. It's just, it's an extra. There's only one, and it's not, I don't know where it fits. And when Jack Taylor came and he preached on the kingdom of God, it wasn't a tremendously deep message. It was a very simple message, but it was like I was sitting on the front row and Papa Jack handed me a big old box and said, here, here's a bigger box to fit your theology in. Because I had this little box sitting on my lap and it said, Ecclesia, the church. And I was trying to fit everything in the church and things were poking out the side and one's, you know, there's kind of hanging out here and this one doesn't even fit in the box whatsoever. And Jack made this statement. He said, all of the church is in the kingdom. But not all the kingdom is in the church. And a light went off. I thought, that's why they don't fit. I need a bigger box. I need a kingdom box. And that sent me on a journey. And two weeks later, I was standing on the front row. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. I'll never forget it. And he told me, he said, the church is not the end. It's the means to the end. The kingdom is the end. And then he told me this. He said, if you allow the church, this church, to be the end, you will inevitably be pulled into catering to people. When we make this earthly expression of the ecclesia, if we become church-centric rather than kingdom-centric, then we inevitably be pulled into catering to people. But when we step back from the ecclesia and we see that the context of the church is the kingdom, that the ecclesia must fit in the basilia, all of a sudden things begin to fall into place and things make sense. All of a sudden we realize that although we're all called to ministry, not all of our gifts are going to be utilized in the local church setting. I'm talking about when we gather as the church, the local assembly. You see, when Scripture talks about the ecclesia, again, those words were already pregnant with meaning. Jesus Jesus was a master communicator. Some of my favorite writers, I I, I love love language. I always have. I was a a solid D student all through school until I went to Bible school, until I got saved. But, uh, But language, even as a little kid with my D's, D's and F's, language always fascinated me. And uh, even as a little kid, I'd get really high in vocabulary. It was a weird thing. I had a D student, but I get this like, you know, 
language has always fascinated me. And I love people who take words that are already clearly defined and then hijack them out of their context to kind of shock you into seeing things in a different way by using them in a new context. And Jesus was a master at that. The word apostle, when he launched his primary invaders, that first wave of people who were going to establish the kingdom, he didn't use established Jewish religious language. He pulled into Roman Grecian culture, military culture, and pulled out a clearly defined idea of someone who was a cultural catalyst, who was going to take the culture of the conquering kingdom and reculturize the area in which they are conquering for the kingdom. They were invested with authority from the conquering kingdom. All of these words were invested with language. And if we're not careful, what we do is we reduce them to, their, to just the, 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 the meaning of the terminology void of its context. It's like saying a pastor in a church is a guy who takes care of the livestock if a church happens to own some. Because the pastor means shepherd. No, there's a context to the pastor and he's taking care of the sheep in the flock, the flock of God, the people of God. And apostles are more than sent ones, because that's what the word means, but there was a cultural context behind it. They were sent ones to reculturize the region into which they were. They were not only called to simply proclaim the kingdom, they were called to shape the culture of that area into the culture of the kingdom, so that if the king were to come, he would feel at home. It was the fulfillment of this phrase, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or, I guess, on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> that it's so much alike, you can point either way. Amen? That, that. So, yeah, that was a good save, wasn't it? But, so that, that it was supposed to make earth look like heaven. That was, the, that was the apostolic mandate. Well, if that is going to happen, it's going to take more than church services. In the, you know, according to the Western mindset. There is going to be need to be the utilization of our giftings in more than simply Sunday morning services. More than Wednesday night services. More than every night revival services. These gifts have to be taken from the four walls of our facility and taken out into the marketplace and utilized so that you become the leaven of the kingdom. One of Jesus' parables. He said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven that a woman kneads into three lumps of dough and it, it's invisible. It's an interesting phrase. It's an interesting metaphor that Jesus chooses because yeast was the original, it was the first domesticated organism known in human history, that this, or not human, uh, living organism, this, this, this living organism, it, it starts out as a single cell and they would leverage that single cell, knead it into dough, and it would transform its host. It would raise it. You, once yeast gets in dough, it can never go back to being unleavened bread. It's too late. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul said. And a little kingdom will kingdomize the whole culture. But God needs the single kingdom leaven, the single-celled organism of kingdom yeast to be you. And you are planted in the culture. And what happens? A single cell becomes a yeast culture. 
that transforms that entire lump of dough. It's a picture of kingdom invasion. So we have this Basilea, the king's dominion, and this is what we're to carry. We take the king's dominion and release it on the earth, on the effects of the fall through the ecclesia. So, before I get all out here, I'm starting to get into all kinds of different things. Let's look at what the, what the Basilea is. Literally, it's the king's reign. I want to say it's... I don't think it is. It's in Luke. I wanted to say chapter 9, but it's, it's not chapter 9. But you'll, you'll recognize the parable where Jesus says there was a landowner who went to receive for himself a kingdom. The NIV translates that accurately. It says it went to receive for him the right to rule. But literally the word is Basilea. The King James Version translates it accurately linguistically, but because of our cultural trappings, we don't understand what's really being said there. It says, it, it says that there's a, a, a man who went, went off to receive for himself a kingdom or the right to rule. You see, it wasn't that he was receiving a realm. It wasn't that he was receiving a patch of ground. He was going to the emperor. See, under that, that, that day and age, and this was not uncommon all through human history, that you would have these conquering kings who would then govern their kingdom through vassal kings or lesser kings. They would infuse with authority and say, you're the king over there and you rule this under me. I'm the king of kings, but you're a vassal king. And at like King Herod, King Herod ruled under the man at that time who was known as the king of kings, the emperor Caesar. And so Caesar literally gave to Herod and the whole Hasmonean dynasty, his family line, he gave to him the right to rule. Herod had gone and petitioned him and said, will you allow me to rule over this, this, this area? And, and what, what you're giving me is authority, and then I take that authority and I bring this area under subjection. So the right to rule made the area into the realm of Rome. First and, foremost, it was the, first and foremost, it was the right to rule. And then it made the, the place that you release that, ultimately bring it under subjection, it became the realm. So when we talk about earth becoming like heaven, when we talk about heaven coming to earth, what it is is God gives us the authority to release on earth the proclamation, the demonstration, and the explanation of His rule. We begin to manifest that. And this wonderful king of ours, the reason it's good news that he has dominion is because this king is good. And he conquers with love. He conquers with benevolence. You see, if God was not good, this message would not be good news. This God who is all-powerful, who can do whatever he wants, who is all-knowing. He knows the secrets of the recesses of your heart. This one who knows everything, he's all-wise. This one who can do anything he wants. And this one who is all-powerful, he's omnipotent, he can do whatever. This, this one, if he wasn't all-good and all-loving, we'd be in trouble. It would no longer be the good news of the king's dominion. It would be, we got some bad news. There's a 
cranky king in town and he knows everything and can do anything he wants. That's why when you see men and women who get a hold of this kingdom message, people who carry a strong message of the kingdom, that, God, that, that they see it, they understand it, that, that it becomes a fabric in their life, they also carry a strong message of the goodness of God. Because you cannot carry a strong message of the true kingdom of God without carrying a message of the goodness of God. Because the good news is that the good king has, has dominion. And if you have a skewed view of God and you think he's still angry and that Calvary wasn't enough and he's still wanting, even though he took his wrath out on his son, he still saved a little up for you. And he's real impatient when you mess up and he's just, he's just waiting to take that old diamond-studded baseball bat he holds on the throne and just knock you in the noggin. That he taps his fingers just irritated and thinking, will he get his act together? If that's your view, you will not be able to really walk in a reality of what the kingdom is. Because that is not the kingdom of God. It's not good news. That God who knows everything and can do whatever he wants. If he doesn't have a benevolent heart towards you, you are in trouble. That is not good news. That is really bad news. And so we have to understand the nature and character of God. That's why we talked about last week. Before Jesus released the kingdom keys on Peter in Matthew 16, this passage we've yet to read this morning, that I had you turn to. This is our text, by the way. He says to him, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. Why did he say that? Because he precipitated it with asking Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter got the right answer. He had good theology. He said, okay, now let me tell you who you are. He had strong identity. And only when he knew who God was and who he was could he handle having access to the kingdom. Because if he didn't know who God was, he would misrepresent him. And God's not about to empower you to misrepresent him. Remember what he did with Moses? Moses struck the rock twice. It was a picture of him crucifying his son afresh. It was the message that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't enough, so God's going to have to whack him again when he got irritated with the Jewish people. That's what happened. Moses was irritated. He had already hit the rock once and the, the, the water flowed forth. And the picture was that God would strike the rock, his son. He would take out his wrath upon Jesus at Calvary. And the living water of the Spirit would flow and the people of God could then drink. And it was enough that he was crucified once. And their faith in that brought them into the access to the living water. That was the picture, the metaphor, the important kingdom message. That's good news. But Moses got angry and misrepresented God and hit the rock a second time. And God said, you misrepresented me, so now I can't allow you to go into the promised land. It was a very serious thing to misrepresent God. We are to represent him to the world. But you first have to be presented to him to represent him to others. You've got to see him as he is. You have to see him correctly or you will give a skewed view. You'll give your skewed view to others. So this thing of seeing the goodness of God and knowing who he is, it, this, that's the primary thing that undoes the fall. And then the secondary effect of the fall, you seeing yourself wrongly. That God can't be trusted and you're not good enough. The gospel strikes at the root of those two things. God can be trusted so much that he'll give his life to win you back. 
And you are good enough because he died and he declared your value through his death. And you've got to come into agreement with him. I'm not saying you're good enough to go to heaven on your own. Uh, What I'm saying is God declares your value by the price that he paid for you. That's the message of the cross. The primary message of the cross is not God's hatred for sin. He had to deal with sin to get at that which was valuable. You. The, The message of Calvary is that he's redeeming that which is valuable. The lost coin is still a coin of great value. It still has the imprint Uh, On the coin, it still has the image on the coin. He's redeeming its value because it was lost. That's the good news. And Calvary undoes, uproots both of those stubborn lies that God can't be trusted and you're not good enough. And when that is settled, you're able to then begin to move into the kingdom reality where he says, I will now give you the keys of the kingdom. That's what he told Peter. There's a reason there was that progression. So this ecclesia, the rule of God. Now we need to understand, the, rule, the kingdom of God is not God's, did not come as a result of the fall. The kingdom of God was the eternal rule of God. It has always been because he has always been. He is in charge. But he will not force that upon you. He gives you a dispensation called your life to make your choice and then the judgment. But the kingdom of God was not, was always in existence. The fall and sin entering into the world disrupted God's eternal plan of of this universe, his creation, expressing his will. So what did God do? He sent his son to reestablish the kingdom. Although the kingdom is the answer to the fall, it wasn't the result of the fall. It wasn't like God came up with this plan. Okay, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do now. I'm going to start this thing called the kingdom. No, the kingdom was already there. It is the answer to the fall. And so Jesus came to to bring his creation back into alignment with the Father. One surrendered life at a time. And what God needed was to secure one surrendered life initially. And that was Jesus. That's why it says that Jesus, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. And it says he was obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. His final act of obedience. And then Hebrews adds this. He said, once made perfect... And it says that Jesus was made perfect by the things he suffered in chapter 4 of Hebrews. That once made perfect, or it's chapter 5. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. See, Jesus couldn't be the source until he had been perfected. Now that, that phrase used to mess with me like, what, Jesus wasn't born perfect? Yes and no. He was morally perfect, but he wasn't complete. He wasn't fully matured. So it wasn't that he was morally defective. He was innocent, but not perfect. And he was perfected. He was, that, that word literally means made mature, completed, uh, brought into its fullness. And so Jesus took the image of God stamped upon his human nature and he developed that into the fullness God intended. 
God had a dream. He said way back in Genesis, I want a man in my own image. And Adam was that man and Adam derailed the thing and we're in the ditch. You know, we're a, we're a, a, a wreck smoking. We're you know, the human race. We, we just messed this thing up. The, the image has been taken into the ditch and we can't fulfill this thing. So what did God do? He said, I'll have another man. He, I'll become one. And he became a man as a baby. He grew and he was, he was tempted in every way such as us until he could finally come into fullness. And the final act of obedience was death, even the death of the cross where he cried out, It is finished! And he gave up the ghost. And that's how he fulfilled and became perfect. And that is what secured our full salvation. We were talking about this on a Wednesday night recently. And I said this, and I believe this, that had Jesus died as a baby in the manger like Herod had intended, he could have, he could have provided an innocent life, but he could, he could have provided for your past sins, but not your future righteousness. Because he had none to give. He hadn't fulfilled all of righteousness. Remember what he told John the Baptist? He said, I must fulfill all of righteousness. What is that about? He was fulfilling. His father had a dream. He said, I want to see a man come into all I intended. Somebody that will trust me through thick and thin and manifest my kingdom and that he'll be so aligned with my will that his will, he will will to will the will of his father and my will will come through him and he will become a living, breathing manifestation of my reign upon the earth. And everywhere he goes, the kingdom of God will be manifested. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, Here's another way to say it. Your will be done. How do you know if God's kingdom has come? When his will is being done. Those, that prayer that he taught us to pray was more than a prayer request. It was a revelation of our marching orders. That God came to redeem not just fallen man, but fallen creation. God is interested in more than simply people being saved and all of the earth going to hell in the handbasket. He wants his will done in more than just people's lives. He wants that expression to come through their lives so that his will is done on the earth. And you intuitively know that even though your, your theology may argue against it. I know people have told me, why well, I rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic. This whole thing's going to hell in the handbasket. Don't worry about affecting society because that doesn't matter. All God's concerned about is that souls get saved. But you don't really believe that. And that's why you've given offerings at times. You, you, you've watched as a little child is starving on TV. And you've been willing to give money to feed that little child. Even though it may not be connected to a Christian organization. Because something within you, the image of God within you, cries out and says, that is illegal and it's not God's will. And I want God's will done. I want his kingdom to come. And his kingdom coming is his will being done. And it's not God's will that that child go to bed hungry. Thus, that is why E. Stanley Jones said, and I think it's so insightful, he's exactly right. The kingdom of God starts with the individual. And if it doesn't, it never really gets off the ground. See, this social gospel that is only about tinkering with society, societal ills, and much of the justice movement is, it skips right, individual righteousness and wants to deal with corporate injustice, will never get off the ground. It, it is not a manifestation of the kingdom. I know committed believers 
I've, I've seen 10, 15 years ago, there were believers that got powerfully touched by God. I saw them launched into ministry. And within a matter of 8, 10 years, they're marching for gay rights, for, for gay marriage. And this is what they said. It's a justice issue. And what I told them is, if it's not a righteous thing, it can't be a just thing. See, that what they've done is they've divorced righteousness from justice. Justice is simply corporate righteousness. When we're talking righteous, we're talking about character. Men and women living up to the standard that God has presented in His Word. It's character. But when you apply that to the group, when you apply that to a nation, and we need to, we need to hold our, our government accountable, when we apply that to a church or a company, it's no longer about character, it's called culture. And culture, when, when a culture manifests the, 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 the image of God, when it manifests the will of God, it expresses itself not as righteousness, but as justice. Because justice is concerned with the responsibility of the group towards the individual. Whereas righteousness is concerned with the responsibility of the individual and how it affects the group. And both are God's desire. God is, in, God, God is interested in both. By the way, interestingly enough, now I'm going to step out into some really thin ice here. Okay? This is the Republican Party, by and large. And this is the Democrat Party, by and large. Justice and righteousness. Which one is God's heart? I'm not saying which, which party is God. I, God's neither Democrat or Republican. He's like when Joshua stood before the Lord and he said, that angel, he said, who are you for, me or the enemy? He said, I'm for the Lord. <laughs> and what God was saying is, I'm not unhuman. You've got to decide if you're on my side. I don't join yours, buddy. <laughs> but here's the thing. Now, the, the screwed up ways these things manifest themselves, I'm not addressing that, okay? But what I am saying is, God is concerned with both righteousness and justice. But if it doesn't start with the individual, it will never really start and get off the ground. But if it ends here, if all we're concerned about is, well, I'm living clean and I'm provided for, then it truly ends right there. And the church of Jesus Christ must be concerned about justice issues. But we also must frame them according to the book. And not some, not some idea that someone else picks up that is totally unhinged from righteousness, okay? And so this, this thing, it's very important for us to understand. So the Basilea is the reign of God. The Ecclesia was that assembly of people. But here's what we need to understand. We're going to close with this. When the Bible uses the word Ecclesia, the Ecclesia literally means assembly. And again, it, it's used in Acts 19 where there was the big riot over Paul making such an impact in Ephesus and, and the, the, the idol, you know, the people that made the idols of, the, of Diana. They were, they were angry and they stormed, and they, they filled up the, the meeting hall and, and uh, it was called the Ecclesia. And, the, and the, 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 uh, pro, the prefect of the city said, wait, we are in danger of having an illegal Ecclesia. Saying have an illegal assembly. It's the same word, church. See, the King James Version stopped using assembly because it went contrary to King James's, an ungodly king. It went contrary to his, what he wanted to do with the church because under their form of government, the king was the head of the church. 
And that was going to infringe because the ecclesia, the assembly, was infused with tremendous authority. By definition. So he said, we're going to get away from ecclesia, the assembly. Let's call it the church. We'll just say, it belongs to the Lord. And let's leave it that way. And over time, that thing was shaped to be reduced to buildings or just a group of people that meet to talk about Jesus. And most of us in this room understand that the church is not this building. We understand it's the people. But what we fail to understand too often, and what we must understand this morning, if we don't understand anything else, we must understand this, that the word ecclesia spoke of more than the assembly. It telegraphed the purpose of the assembly. It spoke to, it was infused with meaning. It didn't just mean a bunch of people joining together. Oh, we're the assembly. No, we are an assembly infused with great authority. The purpose of an ecclesia was a body of people infused with authority, meeting under the jurisdiction of the king for the purposes of the king to both hammer out and enact policy that would reflect the desire of the king. That is the meaning of the ecclesia. And if we don't understand kingdom, we lose the understanding of what the church is. So you and I are the ecclesia of God. We are those who have been infused with tremendous authority that we're to hear the heart of the king. How do we do that? Through revelation. We get in his book. He's left us the the documents of the kingdom. And we we pour over them. We have this internal teacher, the author himself, that brings these words to light. He's given us trainers in the kingdom in the fivefold to equip us for ministry, equip us to carry the kingdom. And we, we read about this. Through revelation, we understand his heart. And through legislation and declaration, we begin to declare through prophetic declarations... Through activity, we go and we get into kingdom implementation. We get the marching orders, we learn here, and we take it outside the walls, and we become an expression of the kingdom in our little place of activity. I just read a story just yesterday. This YWAM couple had gone to a closed country. They, they didn't allow churches there. They didn't allow missionaries there. You couldn't even get a visa unless you were coming with a business idea they felt would help the people of that country. So this, this couple went there as tourists. They were able to get in and they checked things out and they got a business idea and they came and they started a company. And in this company, they trained their workers on how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to raise your children. They trained them on how to, uh, you know, just kingdom principles. And this company became a tremendous blessing to the people in the company. And they all got saved. But they weren't part of a church. They were just employees in the company. And then the company started an orphanage because there were many orphanages around there. And all their workers, then they had seminars for other people outside the company, but it was the company holding. And what the company was, is the company was a church that happened to have a business. And the nation, this closed nation who was an enemy of the gospel and doesn't allow any churches in their, their country, loved this company. 
And they've allowed them to continue to function. And a lot of people are getting saved and set free. And they're discipling them how to be good moms and dads and husbands and, and, and you know, business owners and so forth. And they're discipling a nation. This thing of corporate relationship and individual relationship is so key. And let me just land it with this. If you look in Matthew 13, the primary passage of Jesus' kingdom parables starts in Matthew 13. He goes into a lot of parables. He first tells the parable of the soils, where the word of God in this context is the teacher, is the farmer, and Jesus was the teacher. He sows the seed, which is the word, into the human heart, and it brings forth fruit in their life, and it's individual transformation. A couple of parables later, he says, he talks about an enemy coming and sowing tares among the wheat. And then he interprets both of these for us. He gives us the interpretation I just told you of the one. Then the next one he gives us the interpretation of that the field is the world and God hath, has uh, planted the sons of the kingdom in the field and an enemy, the devil, has planted in the sons of darkness and they're like tares that come up with it. And that's not talking about individual trans. It's not talking about character. It's talking about cultural transformation and discipling a nation. One of the Great Commission passages say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures, individuals. And whoever, individuals, believes will be baptized and saved. But in Matthew, I think it's Mark that says that, in Matthew it says, go into all the world and disciple every nation. It's talking about people groups. It's not talking about individuals. The, gr- the word is very clear. It's ethne. It's a group of people. Go in and shape that people group to become an expression of the kingdom of God. Because God, ta- Jesus taught us to pray something that he fully intends for us to become the answer to. He doesn't, He doesn't expect you simply to pray a prayer. He expects you to become the answer to your own prayer. What is that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we must not be satisfied until it is on earth like it is in heaven. Now, do I believe there's going to be a nirvana on earth, dominion theology, where it's going to be perfect and then the king comes back? No. But that doesn't negate the fact that our job is to see the kingdom manifested. And what this couple went into this nation and began to start a company that not is, is not just helping the saved, but it's also becoming an on-ramp because of their benevolence for unsaved to get saved is the heart of God. And it is an expression of the kingdom. It's preaching the gospel to a culture and not just to an individual. You have an individual relationship with Jesus and you're to be a man or woman of character and you lead other individuals to the Lord. But the fact is, you are also to have a corporate relationship with Jesus through your church and God will drop, just like he drops an individual calling on the individual, he drops a corporate calling on a church and he says, you are to be my leaven in the ki- of the kingdom and you are to affect people, groups, and cultures. And we provide a context in which it becomes easier for people to come into the kingdom. And when we've reduced it to simply to people being saved and saying a prayer, and we've abdicated our influence in society, we have given away 
the, the lead roles in society to those who don't have the mind of Christ, to those who have a darkened heart and darkened understanding. And then we scratch and say, I wonder why the gospel's losing. It's because we've only done half our job. Again, I'm not talking about making the world nirvana to which Jesus returns to. But I am talking about becoming the answer to the prayer that he fully intended us to sincerely pray. That it would become on earth like it is in heaven. Amen? Let's stand. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.